Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Lord, prepare me. I have, you know, um, um, Dr. Schofield in his notes on, on Romans um, says that there are, there are three senses of sanctification. And sanctification is just a big word that says I'm going to be separate and special. Um, there is a verse, and I, I think it's James, it might be in Peter's writings, I don't remember it right now, uh, that says, Husbands, um, minister to your wives as to a weaker vessel. And people have taken that verse and run off and say, see, men are stronger than women. You know, they're weak and we're strong and therefore we need to run everything. That's not what that verse says. That verse actually is, is, is pointing towards the same concept as sanctification. When, when, when they were referring to women as a, or wives, not specifically women, but wives in particular, there, when he makes the reference to a weaker vessel, he's talking about husbands treating your wives as a fine piece of china. I've got, I've got coffee cups. I, I, I used to collect coffee cups of, you know, a particular variety. And, uh, but I've got several coffee cups. I've got three or four that are my everyday. I use them and use them and use them and use them. And they're usually thick. If you've ever been in the military, you know what kind of coffee cups they have. You can almost shoot those things with a rifle and they just won't hardly crack. They're tough. Why? Because guys are tough on cups. But then you've got the fine china. It's thin, it's decorated, it's got gold on it. You don't put it in the washing machine, you wash it by hand. It's a weaker vessel. Why? Because it's special. It only comes out for special occasions. You treat it gently, you treat it nicely. It's set apart. Well, that's what God wants us to do. Remember, we are the bride of Christ. And he treats us as a weaker vessel. Doesn't mean that he's stronger and we're weaker. That is true. What it means is he sets us on a shelf and says, this is my prize. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians, uh, in chapter 6, maybe it's in chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. How is that? Well, you love her like she's a special prize. You put her above everything. She is your number one priority. Amen? And I'm not preaching on, on husbands and wives today, marriage, although not a bad subject. But it does lead us into this, this concept of being sanctified. Um, Dr. Schofield said there are three, actually three types of sanctification that the Bible talks about. There's a sanctification that you go through and is accomplished when you get born again. It's instantaneous, it's complete, it's a done thing. That is when your spirit on the inside of you is reborn. The old man dies, the new man is recreated, you are a brand new creature, has never existed. You are perfect and, and completely in union with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come and abide with you. In one sense, when, when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, we can also say, my spirit and the Holy Spirit are one. 
It's, you, I, I'm convinced if you could strip away the physical body and just see yourself and see others spiritually, people that are born again, you can't separate where my spirit starts and ends and the Holy Spirit starts and ends. We are one. Now that doesn't make me God, but it does mean that God has engrafted me into himself. That's why Paul says in Ephesians that we are seated with him in heavenly places. That is a, an instantaneous, complete process of sanctification. But unfortunately for us, I'm still stuck in this fleshly body. I don't have, my old nature died when I got born again. But the nature of my flesh is alive and well. That's why Paul will say in several places, I, I take control of my body. I make my body submit to me. I train it. I punish it. Now that doesn't, you can take that one, and there have been people that take it way. They'll take whips and beat themselves and flagellate themselves. I've seen people, you know, that have, you know, as an act of penance, will crawl for, you know, miles on their knees to go somewhere to, you know, as an act of penance for their sins. We don't need to do penance for our sins. Jesus covered our sins. He forgave our sins. But we still do have this earthly, fleshly body. It's growing old. You live long enough, you will get old. And eventually it'll wear out. God will say, this thing's not fit to live in. You need to come home. And he will pull the real you out and bring you home to heaven. Now, the, the third, and I'll, I'm going to deal with the middle one, but the last act of sanctification is when Jesus comes back. When he comes back, we are going to meet him in the air. And when I meet him in the air, he's going to give me a brand new body. This body is mortal, it's corruptible. It gets old, it smells, it stinks, it has to be fed. No matter what I do, it argues with me. It wants what it wants when it wants it. And usually what it wants is lots of candy and just sit around. That's what my flesh wants to do. Or if you are prone to, well, I, you know, I want to exercise. Your body won't just want to exercise a little. It'll want to exercise to the extreme, to the point where you'll injure yourself, and your body will say, oh, no, you don't rest. You don't let that heal up. You need to push through the pain. You know, no pain, no gain. Well, I don't know who came up with no pain, no gain. It's an idiotic statement. You can get gain without that kind of pain. But your body is corruptible. It's dying a little bit, day by day by day by day. When Jesus comes back, he's going to give us an incorruptible body. If we're alive on the earth when that happens, we will meet him in the air and our body will be changed instantaneously to a, an incorruptible body, just like Jesus's. Jesus resurrected over 2,000 years ago. That same body is sitting in heaven today. It hasn't grown a day older. It has no sickness. It has no disease. Now, he will bear some scars, the scars of the crucifixion, but we will have no scars. I've got scars all over my body. I've had so many surgeries, I've lost count. I actually had to make a list. I've not only had surgeries, I've had injuries, I've cut myself, I've done all kinds of things. I literally have probably 50, 60 measurable scars. When I get my new body, guess what? None. They'll all be gone. 
That body will never grow old. It will be totally sanctified. I will be God's special prize. Now today, you go to heaven. If you walk in God's kitchen, you can go to his refrigerator and you'll see a picture of me, what that new body will look like. Because my picture's on his refrigerator. I'm that special to him. I'm his son. You go to my house, you'll find pictures of my grandkids. And you'll find notes that they wrote and little things that they've done. Why? Because they're my special little kids. We're on, on Jesus' um, refrigerator. But in the middle, between when I got born again and when Jesus comes back, I've got to prepare myself. I, and and I, I love that song, Lord, prepare me. The problem is Jesus has done what he's going to do. What we have to do now is surrender to that. And there is a work to do, but you have to remember the work that we're doing is done in the strength that he's already accomplished. Amen? It, it's like the sense that, you know, we are an army of occupation, not an army of conquest. The only thing I have to conquer is my own flesh. And even that, I'm going to have to do that in his strength. Because I can't, I've learned a long time ago, I cannot master my body. So, let's, with that said, let's go back and I want to pick up just a little bit. I'm going to try to review this really quick. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. This is what we ministered on last time. And I'm going to just tag a few things. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. Starting in verse 1, Paul asks this question. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? This is a contention that Paul said, you guys say that <clears throat> my theology says that we ought to sin a lot because when, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. That's his question. That's what he's looking at. His answer comes immediately, certainly not. Then he makes some statements. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? It is a fact that I have died to sin. You have died to sin. If you are born again, you died. Your old man died, and the new man was resurrected, and sin does not have dominion over that new man. Amen? Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many as, us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? That's the new birth. I die with him. When I come up out of the water, I'm resurrected with him. My old man died. My new man is brand new. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk. Notice that. It's not shall walk. Should walk. It's a choice that we have to make day by day, moment by moment. That we should walk in newness of life. What newness of life? The newness of life that's represented by that new birth. That new creature that's on the inside of you. Verse 5, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. That's what done away with means. The old man has no power over me because it's dead. 
I, I've had, I've spent, I've gone to more funeral homes than I ever care to go to. Part of it is a function of being in the ministry. Part of it is I'm old enough, I've buried a lot of family members. I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never been to a funeral home where someone was in a casket that I worried about what that person in that, that, that cadaver in the casket was going to say. Never once thought, is they, are they going to embarrass me here? Now, I've had some relatives that are alive and well that when I get together with them, I have had those concerns. They're going to be embarrassing today. There was a time in my life where I was that one that everybody thought, oh my God, is he going to embarrass us today? Don't think about that when you look at a casket. When you see a corpse, that corpse has no ability to act. It's dead. It does nothing. It can't be tempted. It can't do a thing. We are the same way. Sin cannot rule over us because we have, sin has been rendered powerless when that old man died. But here's the point. Why? That we should, again, it's a choice, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And this is the fact that ties it all together. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Sin does not have dominion over you. That's, we're going to get to that verse here later. Why? Because you died. And the new man that came out of that grave, sin has no hold on it. In the same way that when Jesus went to the cross, he became sin. He took on all of the sin of the entire world. And he paid the price. He was punished. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, every punishment that was due that sin, he received, he took it. But when that price was paid, none of that sin could stick on him. Because none of it was his personally. So that when he said the price is paid, he stepped out of that sin and left it behind dead. We stepped out of our sin when he stepped out of that sin. My sin was left behind when he stepped out of it and became righteous because he was always righteous. He had none of his own and he paid the price for mine. Sin can't rule over me now because I've been freed. I died to that. When he died to it, I died to it. Remember, death in this sense doesn't mean that he felt he keeled over. Death means he was separated. He was joined to sin, and at some point when the price was paid, he died to that sin and was separated from that sin, and all that was left was his righteous self. Not just the second person of the Godhead either, but the man, the human spirit of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, how God can be a man and a man can be a God, that's a mystery. And I, I'll be honest with you, anybody that says they understand it, i got to question your, either your sanity or your honesty. Because how God can become a human being and how a human being can be fully God, that's a mystery that I can't, I can't square that at all. It just, it's, it's an impossibility. It's a paradox. Yet it's true. I accept it. But I don't understand it. 
Then verse 11, he says, likewise, you also, and this is, reckon yourself, this is the, what that actually means. You also continually consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Why? Not just dead to sin, but also alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Again, it's a choice. <clears throat> it's a choice. Drop down to verse 13. It says, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness of God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now, the great part of here is we're under grace. We're not under the law. Law requires punishment when you break it. Grace gives forgiveness. But the great part about grace is it doesn't just give you forgiveness. It also brings with that forgiveness empowerment. We have reduced grace to, you know, some people call it sloppy agape. Most people have reduced grace to just God forgives you and you are forgiven and he accepts you. That's, that thinking has led us to um, this idea that, that some people who call on the name of Christ... I don't know if they're Christians or not. You know, there is a, um, um, the latter writers in the epistles talk about churches that will rise up in the last days that will be uh, clouds without rain. They will be, you know, trees without fruit. Basically, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. That doesn't mean that they don't speak in tongues, that they're not Pentecostal. It means that they have a form of godliness. When you go in and you sit down, they will have a church service. They'll have three songs, take up an offering, hear a sermon, and, but they don't believe in the new birth. They don't believe in the power of God to transform you or, or heal you or deliver you. The good news is that and just grace with, as forgiveness can lead you to that. But grace as forgiveness and empowerment, with the empowerment comes the responsibility to do something with that forgiveness. That's why Paul said here, do not uh, present your instruments to sin. You have died to sin. Therefore, turn and present your body, that's what he means by your instruments, as instruments of righteousness to God. It is a turning. I turn away from the sin and I present myself and I go through this process and it is a lifelong process. The only time you end the process of sanctification is when your heart stops beating and you leave the planet. That's it. Until then, until if, if you check your pulse and it's going, you're on, in the process of sanctification. But it's all rooted in His, in his grace. Living out this, this life, being free from the influence sin, lifelong. Uh, but it's a lifelong process of imposing God's will on your life. You have to impose His will on the way you live. It doesn't just happen. Now, we do bear fruit, and you don't have to work hard to get your, the fruit of the Spirit out. You just have to... Concern yourselves with the things of the Spirit. 
you walk in the Spirit, the fruit will take care of itself. How do I do that? Well, we present ourselves. Let's go to, um, and I'm not going to go over there, but let me just touch on it. We, we talked about in Romans 7, that process of sanctification can sometimes get frustrating, to say the least. Paul, in, in Romans 7, 21 through 25, um, f voiced that frustration. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, he answers that, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. When you get frustrated that you don't see yourself progressing, you see yourself falling back into the same patterns that you had before you got born again, your deliverance is Jesus Christ. The main, one of the main thoughts, remember, this, the, originally these letters were not written in chapter verse. Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I have to keep my, my, my reminding myself, yes, I've sinned. Yes, I just fell back and did what I don't want to do. And I, I'm, I'm better at it than I was, but I'm still not delivered from this thing. Well, keep in mind that, that Jesus is not condemning you. Because you have a choice. When you get caught up in sin, you have a choice. Beat yourself up. And most of us have to have a period of that. Why? Because I deserve it. I sinned. I deserve to get punished. Where did you get that idea? Most people have that idea. That's why we have the whole concept of doing penance. Why would I have, would I deserve to be punished for a sin that I committed after I got born again when that sin was already nailed to the cross? See, it wasn't just the sins I committed, that I committed before getting born again that Jesus died for. He died for the sins I committed before I got born again. He died for the sins I committed after I got born again. That sin's already under the blood. If he took the punishment for it, what kind of an idiot do I have to be to take punishment for it afterwards? Let alone punish myself for it. Well, brother, if you don't feel bad and punish yourself, you're just going to stay in that sin. No, have enough brains to realize God's not condemning me. I need to quit condemning me, but I need to step out of it. I need to run to 1 John 1, 9. Say, Lord, I confess it. It was wrong. Yes, but I'm not staying here. I'm not beating myself up. The devil would love to have you stay there and just beat yourself and beat yourself and beat yourself. Why? Because you are not progressing in that process of sanctification if you're constantly beating yourself up over a sin that you've already committed. Confess it. Get it under the blood in your own mind. It's already under the blood. And then move on. Amen? So, we see there our, our salvation and this process of sanctification is not just a skill set. It's more of a mindset. I'm not condemned. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven, but I also have responsibilities since that grace brought me the empowerment to walk out of sin. I have responsibilities to do that. When my flesh says, I want to go do this, just saying you, you treat your flesh like you do a bratty child. You say, shut up, and if you say it again, I'm going to smack you. And if you say it a third time, I'll smack you a little harder. And eventually, it'll shut up. 
You have to take control. Amen? Now, how do we do this? Well, our, our first understanding is that God's not my problem. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and um, verse 11. Let's look at verse 10 first. He says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That basically, when I read that, it's like, okay, I need to be strong. Well, Mount's translation, translation says, grow strong. I found a lot of other translations that said, be strengthened in the Lord, or become strong in the Lord, which tells me this is a process. I need to start through this process of strengthening myself in the Lord and in the power of His might. To do that, I need to put on the whole armor of God. Why? That I might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That word there, wiles, it's only used twice. It's used here in, in Ephesians 6.11 and it's used back in Ephesians 4.14. Paul said back in 4.14, he said, uh, talking about one of the processes that the fivefold ministry goes to through, he says, the reason we go through all this is that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The word there for plotting is the same word for wiles. It literally means schemes. It's the Greek word methodia, where we get our, our word for methodology or method of doing something. The literal meaning for this it, it's it's the, the the it's two it's a compound word that means to travel together, but it's not travel together as two companions. It means that I'm traveling a road and I've got a companion out here. I'm on the path and he's out here in the woods and he's trailing me, and he's watching me and he's watching for a spot where he can ambush me, so he can wound me or rob me or kill me. Brings me back to First John, or, or not, excuse me, not First John, but John 10:10. 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He does that through these schemes. He's constantly walking along with me, plotting. Where can I set up a trap for him? Where can I set this ambush? Because I want to steal, I want to kill, or I want to destroy. I just want to cause harm. Well, in our day, and then basically. This, this is something fairly new. Now, for us, it doesn't seem new because we've been into this process for hundreds of years. But in the history of, of mankind, it's fairly new. When, with the scientific, scientific um, revolution, starting in the 16th, 17th century, mankind, at least the Western world, started this transition into following the scientific method and turning things over and looking for science to solve our problems. That hasn't been a great success. Particularly if you look at the 19th and the 20th century, basically what science did for us, and it did a lot for us that's good, it brought us modern medicine, it's brought us ways to farm more effectively um, so that we can have a population that um, the only time we really have starvation is usually where a war is involved. There are very few places on planet Earth where you have famine today that the famine isn't artificially uh, imposed because of some conflict. Now, they may have famine because of a drought, but they're starving to death because we can't get food to them because of the war. 
Otherwise, we grow more than enough food on planet Earth to feed every creature on this planet. There's, there is no reason for anybody to go hungry. But also what science has done is it's brought more and more effective ways of killing. I mean, if you've ever watched um, um, the history of warfare, you know, we went from fighting with swords where it was one-on-one, -on -one, it was brutal, but you're going to have a hard time for one thing, you get exhausted. You, you ever, if you've ever tried to have a sword fight, even just with stick swords, after five minutes, it's like watching a boxing match and you think, those rounds only go three minutes. Well, I, I, I challenge you to, to put on some boxing gloves and go out and spar with somebody for three minutes. You probably won't want to go the second round because your legs are going to be rubber. It's exhausting to do that. Well, think how much more that would be if you're not just having a fight with gloves on. You're having a fight with, with swords, and if you lose, you die. Well, when you had two armies meet, you did a lot of destruction. It was brutal, but it was face-to-face. -face. And a lot of men could die... But you're naming them in the thousands. In World War II, we bombed cities. They, the United States and Great Britain bombed Dresden, Germany, and killed something like two, 300,000 men and women in one night. Burned the whole city to the ground. Why? Because science had given us ways to make better bombs, deliver them with big airplanes. Today we've got atomic weapons. We can, we've got atomic weapons in our arsenal that can take you can drop it, you know, about half a mile up over the, the uh, Monument Circle in Indy, and there's nothing here but dust as far out of, from there as we are. Science has, has, is, is not the answer, but you can't get that across to most secular people. A lot of our world has bought into to the philosophy of um, materialism. And not materialism in the sense that I want to buy lots of houses and lots of cars. Materialism in the sense that if it's not material, if it, if it doesn't have matter, if it doesn't have mass and take up space, that I can feel it, touch it, smell it, it doesn't exist. They completely deny the spiritual realm of things. And they don't believe in God. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in anything that they can't touch and feel, and it limits their ability to solve problems. Because let's face it, science doesn't have a lot of answers for it. It can answer some questions, but there are a lot of questions. For one thing, it cannot improve the nature of man. Now, I was an educator for many, many years, and it used to tickle me when I would hear people say, well, the answer to all of societal's problems is we need to educate our kids. Educate them in what? That's the question. You can give them the three R's. You can teach them how to read and write, how to you know, um, give them a skill so they can get a good job. If you haven't changed their heart, they're just going to be living in a nice house, driving a nice car, and be just as lost. They're still going to be in the same abusers. <coughs> they're going to be addicted to the same things. And their hearts are going to be empty. The key for us, as believers in Christ, automatically we're not there. But part of the reason that we have to go through, and Jesus wants us to go through this process of sanctification, is so we can be a witness to those people. So they can see a demonstration that the spiritual realm is real. That God is real. 
How do they do that? Well, when you work in a job and, and you're under the same pressures they're under and they're falling apart and you're just sailing through. Now, maybe on the inside it's some challenge, but you know that your sufficiency is in God, so you've turned it over to Him and you're just walking it out. And they look at you and think, how, how can you not be affected by this? They just said they're shutting our plant down and shipping it somewhere else, and we're all going to be out of work. So what? I was looking for a job when I found this one. Well, brother, we're, you could go broke. I could, but God will get me through. Well, I don't see how you can think that. Well, that's because you're not saved. And it gives us an opportunity to present the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel is more than just a, a ticket to heaven. It's empowerment to live our lives. Amen? And to live our lives differently than the world lives their lives. Now, we have to know that um, we have an enemy. Um, not just a personal enemy in Satan, but 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul makes this, this statement to Timothy. He says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am just, or of whom I am chief. The, the, the Greek word there that's translated world is the Greek word cosmos. And it literally means this world system. Jesus designed planet Earth to work a certain way. And it worked perfectly as long as Adam and Eve were walking in fellowship with Jesus. When, when Genesis says that God would come down in the cool of the day and walk with them, that was a pre-incarnate Christ that did. Second person of the Godhead was always the one who revealed himself to man. So it wasn't Jesus. He hadn't taken on a physical body, but he could take on a spiritual body and walk with them and talk with them and communicate with them. But when Satan came into the, to the garden and they fell, that world system twisted. Sin twisted it. And it operates today contrary to what God wants. That's why Paul says in, in several different places that even the natural world moans and groans for the redemption of man. Why? Because when Jesus comes back, you know, the, the curse of the fall is not going to be lifted immediately. But at some point in there, the curse of the fall will be lifted. And when we go into the millennial reign, you're going to live in an earth that's much different than the earth that you see today. You're going to, it's, we're going back to the conditions of the Garden of Eden. You want your corn to grow, you speak to your corn and it'll grow. You want the weeds to die, you command the weeds to die and they die. That's how it all works by faith and what you speak. We'll be in resurrected bodies, and we will operate just as Adam and Eve operated. Amen? But right now, that enemy, we not only have the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but we have the entire world system that runs contrary to us. Amen? Now, why is this important? If you don't have, know you have an enemy, you will blame everything on God. Now, let me, I want to give you an example real quickly. There is a song out, beautiful song. I love this song. It's just the theology is so screwed up. 
And you've probably heard it. It's, it's by Hilary Scott. She's one of the singers for um, Lady Antebellum. But she also, she is a Christian and her family has a singing group too. But she has this new song out. It's called Thy Will Be Done. And in it, and you, you, you listen to the lyrics, and I, I thank God for YouTube, because you can go over, you know, by the time I hear a song, usually on the radio, it's been on YouTube for a year or more. And, but somebody will have put that song on there with the lyrics, so you can actually see them and know what they're singing, because sometimes I have a hard time figuring out exactly what they're saying. But I also watched a little video of the backstory of this song. And the backstory of this song is, she's married, she got pregnant, and had a fairly late miscarriage. And she was heartbroken over it. If you've ever known a woman that's gone through a miscarriage, it, it's, it's a traumatic event. You have lost a child. Even though you never held that child, you still have lost a child. There's a lot of emotions and a lot of things going on. Well, these are the words that she wrote in coming out of that situation. Let me just read them to you. It says, I'm so confused. I know I heard you loud and clear, so I followed through. Somehow I ended up here. I don't want to think, I may never understand that my broken heart is part of your plan. I'm telling you right now, if you've had a miscarriage, if you've lost a loved one, whether it's a child, a parent, a grandparent, whatever, your broken heart is not part of God's plan. It's part of the enemy's plan. He came to kill, steal, and destroy, and he caused the miscarriage. It's not God's fault. Now, I don't blame her, but I will be honest with you. That theology kept me trapped in an absolute desperate hatred of, of, of God for many, many years. Because I had Christians tell me that God killed my children. And I was dumb enough and ignorant enough, I just bought it. Because they were ladies that I knew went to church. They had their hair in a bun. They didn't wear makeup. They had very long skirts. So they were holy. And they said, God won't put more on you than you can handle. And my thinking was, why is God putting this on me? Why would he kill my kids to get to me? He wasn't killing my children. God does not kill children. He's a good God. But the devil will kill them by the millions if he can. And if you can't separate out that God's on your side and the devil's against you, you're going to turn your guns towards God when they deserve to be turned towards Satan. And this world system. Sometimes it's not just Satan personally attacking you. Sometimes it's just a fallen world that we live in and things go wrong. And bad things happen to good people. But in the midst of that, God will take the devastated results that you have and He will restore you. He will empower you. He will heal that broken heart. God is on your side. But if you can't figure that out, you can't progress in that, that process of sanctification. You will get stuck. Mainly because you're angry at God. Why are these bad things happening to me? I thought God was on my side. He is. But you have an enemy. And you have to fight that enemy. Now, not everything that comes our way is from God. But if it is from God, we need to embrace it. We need to keep it. 
But if it's not from God, we need to rebuke it and resist it. That's the only two actions we've got. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is Paul's instructions to Timothy. He says, but you, O man of God. I could read woman of God. It's talking about mankind. Born again creatures. Flee these things. What things? Well, specifically the things that he's talking about there are things that, that people do when they desire to be rich in this world's goods. Which is foolish. Doesn't mean God doesn't want you rich. If he can trust you with money, he'll make you rich. People that pursue riches just to hoard it up, God says flee that. For one thing, according to Matthew 6, 19 and 20, all those things rust, they go away, they're not going to last long. That brand new BMW in a few years, it's going to lose its new smell, it's going to get old, not going to run right. Cars get old, quick. But what do I do? I don't just flee those things, I pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. That's that process of sanctification. Fighting the good fight of faith, laying hold of the eternal life that Jesus has already given me. If He's given me eternal life, why do I have to hold on to it? Or lay hold on it? Because your flesh will pull you off. It'll pull you off in a heartbeat if you don't stay on top of it. It's just like being in shape. I can remember, it's been a long time ago, getting a little foggy, those memories, but I can remember being 16 and 17 years old. And come fall of the year, if you wanted to play basketball, you had to run cross country to, um, to be, even have a shot at getting on the basketball team. So I went out for cross country. If there's one thing in this world I hate, it's running without a ball in my hand. You put a ball in my hand, I'll run all day. I'll run all night. But with it, just to go run on a road, it's like this is the most boring activity. Why in the world? It just makes me breathe hard. I hurt. Why in anybody's, God's name would anybody want to do this? But I'd go out and I'd run. In fact, we had a, uh, he had a habit. We would have to get to school early. He'd take us five miles away from school, drop us off, and say, okay, guys, we're running back. You're running back. He drove back. Well, I couldn't get there. I wasn't driving yet. So I had to run six miles to get to school. And then he'd drive me in another direction five miles. I got an 11-mile run-in every morning before class. And I didn't want to be on the cross-country team. But I could do it. Today, if you ask me to run from here to the platform back there, I'd probably collapse halfway there. Why? Because I haven't laid hold on that for many, many years. Part of it is, was, was health considerations. Part of it was just I didn't particularly like exercising. I lost that ability as I got older, partly because of age, but also partly because I just quit exercising. I quit pushing my body to be in shape. What works in the natural realm also works in the spiritual realm. If you quit pushing and pressing into God, you will lose things that you had at one time. And I've heard people say it. I don't know what's wrong. I used to hear the voice of God all the time, and I just don't hear God anymore. Well, have you quit pressing in? Have you, quit your, have you, have you reduced your prayer time? Have you reduced the amount of time you spend reading the Word? And not just reading the Word for the sake of reading it. I've checked off my box. I did my devotions today. No, reading it to find out how to, what's God calling me to do today. 
What's your plan for me today, Lord? Bring me to the scriptures. And believe me, there are, there are scriptures that there are just some that I keep going back to. I go back to them and back to them and back to them. Why? Because they meet the need that I have. My flesh, flesh has certain tendencies that it's always wanted to go in. This is the problem with addiction. If you've ever been addicted to a substance, that will always be a weakness that you have to avoid. Even though you're no longer addicted to it. You've broken the physical addiction, but emotionally and spiritually, your body will want to drift to that, and you have to constantly fight against that. You have to find a scripture that, that opposes that need and constantly bring yourself into subjection to the scriptures. Every one of us has an area that's our weakness. Yours is different than mine, but you got them. I got them. If you're alive, you've got some weakness that's going to pull you towards it. And you have to find the scriptures that, that, you, that God gave you and just keep going over it and over it and over it. It's like, well, I've read that scripture a thousand times. Well, if you're not on your deathbed, you're probably going to read it another couple of thousand times. If it meets the need, keep doing it. I've said it before. I love ribeye steaks. I've eaten a lot of ribeye steaks in my time. And you know what? I plan on eating a lot more before I check out of here. I could eat one a day. Would not face, I'd never get tired of them. Not if they're cooked right. You can butcher them too. Hard, but it can be done. We have to recognize that, that we have to fight this good fight of faith. We have to lay hold on eternal life. And it's a process that we never, ever get out of. Not until we die. And you do it. it, it it's simple. Let's go back to Ephesians. That's where we started. Ephesians 6, 10, and 11. He said, Finally, my brethren, grow strong in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of His might. Well, what's the difference between His might and His power? His might is the inherent strength that, that God just has. You see some guys, Saturday morning, um, um, Pastor prayed for Joe Thompson's dad. Well, Joe comes to prayer if he's in town every Saturday. And he was there, but he brought his son, Kyle. Kyle uh, went to West Point. Well, Kyle was there Saturday morning, came to say hi and to visit with us for a few minutes. He just got his Green Beret. He's, he is a well-trained soldier. That boy sat down at the table, and it's like his t-shirt fit, except in the arms. His, that, that, it looked like, my Lord, you, if you stretch that cloth any harder over those, those biceps, it's going to split. This boy, he is a green beret. He, he has to be in shape and fit. He, it's obvious he lifts a lot of weights. You can look at him and say, he's mighty. He has some inherent strength. I know his training. He's made it through ranger school. He's made it through green beret school. He made it through halo school. You do not want to pick a fight with this guy. Now, you can look at him and know He's mighty. You know what? I sat down at the table. I didn't fear him a bit. He could pick me up and snap me in two in a heartbeat. But his power, if he, when he gets deployed and he's at the tip of that sharp spear out there somewhere, and he's fully equipped and he's got his weapon, his power will someday be put on display. That's what this is saying. 
Jesus has this inherent might. He is strong. He is mighty. He rules the universe. But we are to be strong not just in his might, but in the power. That power is his demonstrated power. He not only is mighty, but when the devil messes with you, if you will take authority over the devil, he will back you up. It's much like if Kyle and I go walking somewhere, you know, there are places in, in this city you don't want to go after dark. It's, there are scary regions of this city. But I would not hesitate to go walking about anywhere in this city if I had Kyle right beside me, especially if he's packing. Why? Because most people are going to take a look at him and say, I don't want to mess with that guy. Why? Because he looks like he could hurt me. Well, when you walk through life, you have got Jesus walking right beside you. And believe me, as strong as Kyle looked, he's nothing compared to Jesus. And Jesus is ready to demonstrate that power on your behalf, if you will ask him to. Unfortunately, if you don't ask, he's a gentleman. He'll stand back and let you fight your own battles. I don't necessarily want to fight those battles because I don't win most of them. Now, the question is, how do I fight that battle? And that's for next week. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.